Welcome to the PRI Review, brought to you by the Population Research Institute. I'm your host, Christopher Mannion. Fight or flight? I've been condemned to fear for the whole of my life, Soviet defector Anatoly Kuznetsov told the New York Times a half century ago. From the age of five, I've been living in a state of fear, and this is not just my personal lot. It is the fate of all who are born in this Russian land, all of them, those who command and those who are regimented, those who punish and those who are punished. All are afraid because they are afraid of each other. And those who fear most of all are the dictators themselves. End quote. Well, Scripture tells us that God did not create man to live in a constant state of fear. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, said Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9. Be not afraid. These are the words of the archangel Gabriel to Mary, of Jesus to the apostles in the stormy sea, and of Mary to the children of Fatima. God tells us not to fear because he knows how easily we can fall under its spell. One of the most primitive reflexes of the brain's limbic system is fight or flight. The unknown surprises us. Fear envelops us. A rush of adrenaline prepares us as we make our split-second decision. Confront the threat or flee. Our very life depends on those few seconds. Or not. In the current unpleasantness, for instance, that split second has been stretched to become weeks. It might go on for months, and meanwhile we ponder. An opportunity for contemplation has been imposed upon us by an unseen force. What is the threat? What should we fear? Are we fighting or are we fleeing? Look, the Wuhan virus can kill us, so we flee it. We wash our hands, wave from a distance, we don a mask. Are we smiling? Who knows? We're masqueraded in a permanent Halloween. Doctor's orders, expert's orders, governor's orders. They order and we obey, which means that the threat to the physical health of a small number has eclipsed a larger threat to a much greater number, and threatens permanently to infect us all. Now, as Kuznetsov observes, we are afraid of each other, or at least we should be, according to the so-called authorities. But as he also testifies, there are some who long to command, and fear is their weapon of choice. After all, you don't have to be a Soviet commissar to lust after power. Didn't Augustine tell us that the city of man commanded by Satan was driven by the libido dominandi? Well, the power-hungry aren't all in Russia either. Right here at home, there are plenty of folks who are just itching to run other people's lives. Right now, some of them are using the Wuhan virus and its cloud of our unknowing to run an experiment. Not an effort to find a cure, but enough effort to keep us sick, all of us. Consider the budding tyrant's methods. First of all, he reminds us, be afraid, you might die. Okay, fair enough, but good priests want to offer the sacraments to a sick and suffering faithful. They aren't afraid of dying. Enter the second method. Shame on them, they might kill somebody. No martyrs need apply. 
Fear and shame, shame and fear. Kuznetsov's wannabe commissars are watching us laboratory mice, for they see us thus. Closely. How far can they go? As their experiment plays out, the scaremongers are pleasantly surprised. Some even gloat. Behold, we're not fighting. We're not even resisting. We've surrendered, and they know it. But wait, they're from the government. Aren't they here to help? Let's face it. There do exist men who are more interested in maximizing their power than in helping others. These men will avail themselves of every opportunity to gain power and keep it. But they can't be blunt and honestly tell us, look, I want power, obey me. <laughs> Even now that won't work, not yet. As Socrates taught us, they have to persuade the public, the very public they wish to oppress. So they consult Machiavelli, and suddenly the new policies that will consolidate their power are for our own good. Resist? Wait, they tell us we might die. Do they really care? Of course not. For them, abortion is essential, remember? Simply put, a lot of actors do not have as their highest priority the protection of the innocent and the health of the threatened. These guys come from mindsets that have killed millions without losing any sleep at night, and the entire world right now is up for grabs. That is their playbook. Well, here we are astride the widening divide. Inundated by data, models, and endless chatter, the landscape changes constantly. No matter, the distemper of the times refuses to budge. For all the unknowns we know, and what we know does not please us. It's still us and them. Now in coming days, we will distrust authority more than ever. From the media to the experts to the politicians to the bishops to the notion of authority itself, we will take a rain check. Not that power won't continue to assert itself. It always does. But now we know why. Months ago, thousands of Virginians rallied, confident that our allies in law enforcement would defy a sadistic black-faced governor's unconstitutional order to seize our guns. Not anymore. Too many videos of police chasing down lone joggers, arresting stray pedestrians, harassing churchgoers, and handcuffing sidewalk pro-life prayer warriors have saturated our screens. Their message? We're just following orders. It's for your own good. Of course, that's what the Soviets told Alexander Kuznetsov. He wasn't convinced. Well, what lies beyond the virus? This time warp seems to wear on like an induced coma. When we wake up, some things will abide, some won't. The church, the economy, our work, education, even our community life are going to be challenged. And then there's politics. Our lives have been politicized as never before, saturated. For the moment, millions are paralyzed in fear, ours and theirs. The Kuznetsov effect might be only temporary, but it is real, and it is unhealthy. We now have experts telling us that we can't go back to work or to church or out to lunch until we have met their demands. How? How to comply? They will test us and give us a permit to leave home, if we behave ourselves. 
What do we do with it? Put it in our wallet? But how will strangers on the street know not to fear us? Better wear it like a badge. But wait, badges can be forged. Better yet to put it on a computer chip manufactured by the dependable Bill Gates, and we can insert it just above the wrist on our right forearm. That's the ticket. And without that ticket, we can't leave home. The Communist Party of China has inaugurated a state-of-the-art social credit system. No kidding, everyone is monitored in word and deed and increasingly in thought. This system has great appeal among those who would be our masters. The unruly deplorables must be brought to heel, that's us folks, and fear seems to be working quite well for now. But for how long? Kuznetsov again. You know, your masters fear you more than you fear them. Really? Well, what are we waiting for? You're listening to the PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. We'll be right back. Do you want to win pro-life legislative and political battles? For years, PRI has been helping pro-life leaders on the ground around the world to win legislative and political battles in order to protect the lives of the unborn. And now we're asking for your help so we can continue this vital work. Let me tell you more. In a number of countries around the world, there are still pro-life laws on the books. But the Planned Parenthood Abortion Liberalis Malthusians are out there to get rid of those laws. Nearly five years ago, the Pontifical Council on the Family asked PRI to be the main organization to help the pro-life movements around the world to be more effective. In response to the Vatican's request, we created our Pro-Life Victory Seminars and our Pro-Life Strategy Guide. The seminars are grueling, demanding 12 to 14-hour intense working sessions. Only the most proven and successful leaders are invited to speak. Only the best and the most committed activists are invited to attend. To date, we have conducted 60 such sessions in 18 countries. We have trained more than 1,700 people who are serious about protecting the unborn in their respective countries. They have won some victories, but I'm not going to tell you about those because I don't want to put a target on the back of those leaders. I'm not going to tell you the names of their countries either because I don't want to make it even harder for them to do their work. But here's a hint. Most, though not all, have Spanish as their native tongue. It's no secret that south of our border, pro-abortionists are zeroing in on the existing pro-life laws in that part of the world. I cannot tell you the battle stories, although there are many, without endangering the victories of the leaders. I must ask you to take my word that some battles in some countries could not have been won without the training and support received from PRI. What kind of training am I talking about? Everywhere in the world, defenders of life need everything. Strategic thinking skills, campaign skills, legislative skills, lobbying skills to protect their pro-life laws and to stop pro-death initiatives. 
Around the world, we found that the biggest thing lacking is know-how. By that, I mean political sophistication. Here in America, we've been fighting pro-life battles for almost 50 years, and while we haven't won definitively, we have learned a lot about how to fight, as well as how not to fight. One of the most important tools of our pro-life victory training is the manual that the trainees get to take home with them, the Pro-Life Strategy Guide, the guide to winning pro-life battles. Think of it as a field guide to activism. The guide is a compendium of know-how. It is 200 pages of distilled experience and wisdom with step-by-step -step instructions about how to advance our issue in a representative landscape. Here's a small sampling of the know-how delivered in these training sessions. How to raise money, how to lobby legislators, how to write powerful pro-life advertising, how to effectively appear on TV and radio, how to enlist volunteers, how to get out the vote, and how to successfully debate pro-abortionists. All this and much, much more is covered in the training program and reinforced in the training guide. The first edition came out in 2012, but we are all out of them now. They have all been put in the hands of able pro-life leaders. So today we have had it revised and updated by two of the best and most successful activists in the Spanish-speaking world. Today, the new PRI, Pro-Life Strategy Guide, the guide to winning pro-life battles, is ready to go to press. This is where you come in. Will you help us get it into the hands of the people who need it? It's in Spanish right now, and that's as it should be, because we distribute it throughout the Spanish-speaking world. The Vatican wants this field manual in every diocese in the world. Will you help me to fulfill that request? PRI has ordered 10,000 copies of the guide to be printed, enough for every student who will attend our training sessions for the next several years, along with all the actively pro-life bishops around the world. Just the printing alone will cost $50,000. The whole International Victory Training Program costs another $50,000, and that is in addition to the field guide. But right now we want to get those guides printed. So I turn to you because I know you understand its value. The cost comes out to about $5 per book, which is not very much considering the impact it can have and the lives it can save. With your tax-deductible gift of $50, PRI can put this guide into the hands of 10 in-country pro-life leaders. With a gift of $100, we can make sure that 10 friendly bishops get a copy to guide their strategic thinking in the protection of life. No gift is too small. If you can only spare $5, please send it today. Unborn babies around the world will be safer because of your sacrifice today. Can we count on you to help PRI to continue to train and empower the pro-life movement around the world? On behalf of all those fighting to preserve pro-life laws around the world, thank you. Ralph Northam expands abortion on demand, gutting protections for unborn children and their mothers. 
Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of the pro-life Susan B. Anthony List, reports on what amounts to be a revolution in our own Commonwealth of Virginia. For millions of Christians in America, Good Friday is the most somber holy day of the year. It is a time for solemn reflection on the most unjust execution of all time, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In 2020, many were also feeling the ache of separation from their communities and family members because of the Wuhan flu pandemic, a sacrifice endured because the state leaders, among others, have told us what is necessary to protect the vulnerable and save lives. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam chose to observe Good Friday by signing into law a radical expansion of abortion on demand, gutting hard-won protections for unborn children and the health and safety of their mothers. The new law not only repeals key informed consent provisions, but for the first time it permits non-physicians, such as nurse practitioners, to carry out abortions. Religious leaders called Mr. Northam's choice of timing a particular affront to all who profess the gospel of life. Now, this isn't the first time Mr. Northam's outrageous conduct has sparked widespread disgust. Last year, his delegate Kathy Tran proposed an even more radical abortion bill that, by her own concession, would have legalized abortion on demand even at the point when a woman is in labor. Mr. Northam was asked if he supported this effort. And defending it, Mr. Northam, a pediatrician, went even further and described how a baby born alive during an abortion could be left to die. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother about whether or not to provide life-sustaining medical care to the helpless child. Mr. Northam's Good Friday assault on life should set alarm bells ringing across the nation, the same way his shocking endorsement of infanticide did. It is a sharp reminder that elections have consequences and that Mr. Northam could only sign this horrid legislation because the narrow Republican majority in the legislature that had held the line for years was recently slept away. Abortion extremists can impose their twisted vision only if we who stand for life fail to use the tools of democracy that are the birthright of every American. The stakes couldn't be higher this November. Every Democratic contender for president in 2020 has favored abortion on demand through birth and even infanticide, paid for by the taxpayers. Presumptive nominee Joe Biden is no exception. Both Mr. Biden and Mr. Northam were once perceived as moderates, but those days are long gone as they race leftward to appease an increasingly radical base. Ever since Mr. Biden reversed his position on the Hyde Amendment, a long-standing federal policy estimated to have saved more than 2.25 million lives by preventing taxpayer funding of abortions, he has fully embraced the abortion lobby's extreme agenda. And while a majority of Americans want abortion limited to, at most, the first three months of pregnancy, Democratic Party leaders in both houses of Congress have repeatedly blocked 
compassionate legislation to protect babies who survive abortions as well as to stop late-term abortions after five months of pregnancy, a point when science knows unborn children can feel excruciating pain. In stark contrast, President Trump has governed as the most pro-life president in history. Acting on the will of the people, he has done everything in his power to stop taxpayer funding of the abortion industry. He has had two outstanding U.S. Supreme Court justices and nearly 200 federal judges confirmed by the U.S. Senate and potentially many more. At every opportunity, including two State of the Union addresses and virtually every rally, he has used his platform to call out the Democrats' extremism and urge Congress to send popular pro-life bills to his desk. He has even invited abortion survivors to meet with him in the Oval Office. Democratic Party leaders have betrayed the most innocent among us, their pro-life constituents, and about one-third of rank-and-file members of their own party. Susan B. Anthony List's canvassing team will be working nonstop through Election Day to educate and mobilize millions of voters in critical background states, including the pro-life Democrats and independents, to re-elect President Trump and win a pro-life Senate. This November, don't let extremist politicians wash their hands and move on. Hold them accountable at the ballot box. Well, there's one view of what's going on on the pro-life front in Washington. This is the PRI review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. We'll be right back. What's the best way to celebrate Humane Vitae's 50th birthday? For most of us, the answer is close to home, and specifically in our own parishes. Here's why. Six years ago, when Timothy Cardinal Dolan was president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, he admitted that our bishops have had laryngitis on Blessed Pope Paul's beautiful encyclical. Laryngitis for 50 years! Unfortunately, that's still true for many bishops who are too tied up with the political agenda of their national bureaucracy in Washington. There, issues like global warming, socialized medicine, and federal contracts for the bishops' welfare agencies have dominated the agenda for years, crowding out pro-life efforts and leaving Humane Vitae an orphan. That doesn't mean that the lay faithful haven't been asking. We have. In fact, pleas to our shepherds have had some heartwarming results in recent months, with several bishops coming forward with strong public defenses of Humane Vitae. But the real work has to come from the grassroots, and that means the laity, because our busy bishops can't do it alone. They need our support, our encouragement, and our prayers. After all, the pro-life movement started at the grassroots, and its strength has stayed there. Bishops are often supportive of pro-life groups in their dioceses, but few are focused on them. Most chancery staffs spend much more time on immigration, refugees, fundraising, and other programs that receive federal funding. Pro-life efforts receive no federal funding, so pro-lifers have to fend for ourselves. While our bishops have countless distractions, our parish priests know us and we know them. They offer our most reliable source of support and encouragement, when it comes to celebrating Humane Vitae's birthday party. 
and a wise pastor has a good suggestion on how to make it work. It boils down to this. Instead of telling your pastor, Father, you ought to do something about this. Tell him, Father, a group of us would like to have a reading group in the parish to study Humane Vitae. We've got the texts, the commentaries, and all the materials. All we need is some space in the parish one night a week and an announcement in the bulletin to spread the word. Don't worry, we'll do all the work, but we'd love to have your support, and it would be great if you could join us whenever you can. And by the way, a further note from long pastoral experience. Don't ask Father on the way out of Mass. Write him a note and ask him for a few minutes of his time at his convenience. There you'll have his full attention, and he can write down what he remembers of your conversation, and that's impossible when 50 or 100 people are shaking his hand after every service. Writing that letter also gives you the opportunity to pad your pitch with some supporting evidence. In this case, not only the support from bishops, including your own, we hope, but especially referring to the world-class conference that the bishops sponsored in Washington at the Catholic University of America last April. It was thanks to the support from Catholic University stalwart President John Garvey that this conference came off without a hitch with the admirable support The conference offered three days of top-notch speakers and presentations, and they're all online. Supporters of Humani Vitae can cite this national conference as their inspiration for activities throughout the country in the diocesan and parish levels. And here's some great news. Our new website devoted to Humani Vitae is now online. It's a treasure trove of information for your parish group. Here's how to find it. Go to your website browser and type in humanevitae.org, no spaces, and remember, the dot is a period. There you will find a treasure trove of information for your parish group. Just go to humanevitae.org to find not only the masterful history of contraception by Dr. Gonzalo Herranz in four languages, and by the way, that's the history of the promotion of contraception against church teaching and natural law for over a hundred years. But it also includes the latest news and links in a wide array of resources. We'll be updating the site continually with new reports, materials, and insights from all over the world. In no time, it will be your go-to site for Humane Vitae News. Remember, just go to humanevitaeproject.org and enjoy. And please don't forget to support PRI so that we can keep this project worldwide in four languages going until everyone knows the truth about Humane Vitae. Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler is encouraging all of us to support the effort to prevent the use of cells from aborted infants and any Wuhan virus vaccine. Now, Archbishop Joseph Nauman and other Catholic leaders, both lay and clerical, recently wrote Dr. Stephen M. Hahn making that request. Dr. Hahn is commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Archbishop Nauman wrote, 
As our nation works to defend itself from the deadly coronavirus disease, we write to ask your help to ensure that Americans will have access to vaccines that are free from any connection to abortion. To be clear, we strongly support efforts to develop an effective, safe, and widely available vaccine as quickly as possible. However, we also strongly urge our federal government to ensure that fundamental moral principles are followed in the development of such vaccines, most importantly, the principle that human life is sacred and should never be exploited. It is critically important that Americans have access to a vaccine that is produced ethically. No Americans should be forced to choose between being vaccinated against this potentially deadly virus and violating his or her conscience. Fortunately, there is no need to use ethically problematic cell lines to produce a Wuhan virus vaccine, or any vaccine for that matter. Other cell lines or processes that do not involve cells from abortions are available and are regularly being used to produce other vaccines, the Archbishop wrote. Well, folks, we have to support this effort. Remember what we're up against. States with pro-abortion governors have locked down religious services but insist that abortion mills stay open because they're essential. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi demands more abortion funding as any part of legislation designed to reinvigorate our economy. That's really going to help the economy. Archbishop Nauman's voice should resonate through the halls of Congress and the White House to make sure that the remains of unborn children aren't being exploited for profit. It doesn't have to happen, and it shouldn't happen. We should urge Dr. Hahn to make sure that it doesn't happen. Now, the month of May is devoted to Mary, the mother of the church, and Pope Francis has asked us, because of the pandemic, to devote this month in prayer to her. For this reason, he writes, I want to encourage everyone to rediscover the beauty of praying the rosary at home in the month of May. This can be done either as a group or individually, You can decide, according to your own situations, making the most of both opportunities. Also on May 1st, the U.S. and Canada will be consecrated to Mary, Mother of the Church, and Archbishop Jose Gomez, who is president of the U.S. Catholic Conference, is inviting all American bishops to join him on May 1st in reconsecrating the United States to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The reconsecration is timed to coincide with the bishops of Canada consecrating their own country to Mary. Archbishop Gomez, who is the Archbishop of Los Angeles, said in a letter sent to all American bishops on April 22nd that the Marian consecration should be done under the title of Mary, Mother of the Church. We can join him and all the bishops of the country to join him in prayer on May 1st at 12 noon Pacific Daylight Time or 3 p.m. on the East Coast. Good idea. Catholic bishops in Europe and the Americas are dealing with widespread blowback against their blanket cancellation of public masses and most other sacraments. Here in Virginia, Arlington Bishop Michael Burbridge and Richmond Bishop Barry Nestot both based their cancellation decision not on their own consecrated authority, but on the lockdown order of Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. Northam is a notorious uh, advocate of abortion and infanticide, even though he's a pediatrician. And he is also a racist 
but seems to be able to stay in office because he has pandered to the most left-wing portion of his Democrat party in Washington across the Potomac. Well, the governor's order forbids all unessential religious services while leaving bars, grocery stores, and abortion mills open until June 10th. Well, a lot of us are wondering, did the bishop's decision, made under pressure to be sure, both of events and pressure from the Democrats in Richmond, did this set a bad precedent? For instance, Governor Northam actually supports infanticide for babies who survive abortion. Now, this is the case in other states ruled by the pro-abortion party as well. Why haven't America's bishops objected to this so-called abortion right when governors have revoked our religious rights? Governor Northam's order was not universally welcomed, and neither was the bishop's acquiescence. Catholics were told by their chanceries to tune in to masses televised over the Internet or cable television. On that particular, Father Jerry Pekorsky, a pastor in the Arlington Diocese, took to the Internet publication Catholic Culture to warn of what he called the dangers of live-streaming masses. And I quote, Bishops have canceled the public celebration of the Mass in obedience to government authorities, he wrote. Pekorsky called streaming Internet masses a quasi-liturgical innovation that may have problematic long-term ramifications. Father Pekorsky invoked Pope John Paul II, who in 1979, quoting here, encouraged priests in their sacred ministry. St. John Paul's words were remarkably prescient, he wrote. Think of the places where people anxiously await a priest and where for many years, feeling the lack of such a priest, they do not cease to hope for his presence. And sometimes it happens that they meet in an abandoned shrine and place on the altar a stole which they still keep and recite all the prayers of the Eucharistic liturgy and then, at the moment that corresponds to the transubstantiation, a deep silence comes down upon them, a silence sometimes broken by a sob. So ardently do they desire to hear the words that only the lips of a priest can efficaciously utter. So much do they desire Eucharistic communion, in which they can share only through the ministry of a priest. End quote St. John Paul II. Well, Father Pekorsky's going against the grain here. He recommends that and I quote, during these unfortunate times, it seems better to emphasize the real presence of Jesus in traditional ways, in gathering of two or three, but not more than ten, so as not to violate governmental decrees. The reading of the word and a spiritual communion, yearning for the real presence in better times. In the meantime, Pekorsky continues active clerical and lay resistance to governmental claims that church attendance is non-essential, would affirm authentically Catholic worship. We must not allow the virtual reality of electronic images to replace our desire for the real presence, end quote. And of course, we face the very real and present danger that a lot of folks will consider the Mass to be a televised option that 
when the pandemic subsides will still be something to think about, something to consider. But should we really go back to Mass? After all, we've been excused from Mass for the first time in many of our lives for months. Let us pray that that doesn't come to pass. Well, here's some bad news. Life after the virus will be different, we know. But in the Diocese of Buffalo, it will be different for Catholics. WIVB Buffalo reports that in mid-March, the coronavirus forced the Diocese of Buffalo to hold Masses without congregations present, like the rest of the country. The Most Reverend Edward Schaffernberger, who is Albanese Bishop, says some parishes may never hold a public Mass again. It would depend upon the parish's own unique circumstances, the bishop says. It is not too dramatic to assume that some just may not be able to reopen again. There may need to be some sort of mergers, end quote. And, of course, when churches close, what happens to the Catholics who went to them? If keeping the church open is optional, is going to the other one optional as well? It's going to be a tough time for Catholics coming up, and we need to pray together in May to our Mother Mary to keep us safe from all harm. You've been listening to the PRI Review, a news roundup brought to you by the generous supporters of the Population Research Institute at pop.org. Thanks for listening.